Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me. We talk about faith and politics and all kinds of topics that really matter in our culture. So if you're tired of all the screamers out there taking all the oxygen out of the room and you want to join us and taking some of that space back, you'll love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, and I am so glad to be joined by my my co-host and and journalist warrior, Roca. Jessica. Yeah, the Jessica, the reporter Stone, and uh, we are so grateful to have a place to talk about faith and politics and big ideas in our culture with all kinds of interesting, accomplished folks of goodwill in good faith. And I'm really excited to announce that it's easier than ever to find us and join our community and perhaps support us. And that's on politicsandreligion.us. The end is spelled out, politicsandreligion.us. Check it out. Consider becoming one of our patrons. That'll really help us continue to have conversations like the one we're having today. Jess, how you doing, by the way? I'm doing well. Doing well. The kids are out of the bathtub and watching TV, so we have no background noise. That Cross your fingers. If the kids can get out of the bathtub, that makes me believe we can have world peace. <laughs> There's hope for us all. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, it starts at home. Listen, I want to introduce somebody that I have known for, you know, probably a couple of decades. Um, This is our guest, Dr. Melanie Ross. She is an associate professor of liturgical studies at the Yale Divinity School. She studies the North American contemporary evangelical worship scene and argues that the common ground shared by evangelical and liturgical churches is more important than the differences that divide them. But um, bum, but um, bum, kind of our lane. She must. Rec- she most recently authored the book Evangelical Worship: An American Mosaic. And best of all, she and I went to high school together and spent hours singing together. And to prove it, jazz hands. <laughs> That's definitely going on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> so, Melanie, welcome so much. Uh, we really are glad to have you here. Proud of the path that you've taken in life. Grateful to have you here on Talking Politics and Religion without killing each other. Welcome. Thank you so much. What a privilege to be here. What a what a great chance to see my friend Jess again. Um, it's been many years, but I'm so delighted to hear about your good work. And Corey, what a joy to meet you. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Awesome, awesome. So, I, okay. So I told Jessica I wouldn't I wouldn't be talking that <laughs> told much. Told me I was going to ask a few questions, <laughs> my friend. Here you go. I, I can't even help myself. All right, all right. But I have to know since since Jess, you know, told us that you guys went to high school together. I got to know, what was high school Jessica like? (laughs) Not about me, Corey. (laughs) You know, I I think that's one of the really cool things about a a long-term friendship is seeing somebody that you knew back in the day kind of fully becoming themselves as they get older. So um, Jess has always been super compassionate and super driven and well-organized and articulate and beautiful. And she's only become these more of more of all of this in wow, the decades since I've seen you later, her, so. Melanie. Yeah, <laughs> you in true. Spades. The truth. Very kind. Um, you know, one of the things that was so interesting to me about reading your upbringing that I don't think I fully recognized is 
there were, we have a lot in common. The Maranatha music experience that you had. I had a Hosanna, Hosanna integrity music experience growing up. Just really curious for you, because I knew you through the prism of music uh, in, in school, not music in the worship context. When did music of the church really sort of capture your heart, your heart to understand, study, and research? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and it's not as if I could pinpoint a particular moment. Um, I've always loved singing in church ever since I was a, a small child and listening to my mom sing the alto part next to me and wanting to learn how to harmonize like that. And when we were together in high school, um, I was dragging my guitar to to the period before homeroom and playing those Maranatha and integrity praise choruses for a little Bible study for, uh, for two or three years of my high school experience. I only knew about five chords, but that's really all you needed to, <laughs> to get those songs. And I went off to college and I was a music education major, partly because that was a more guaranteed job security coming out of it. I could teach in any school K through 12 and still volunteer at a church or use my gifts there. But I would say it was my um, senior year of college that uh, we started to have some debates about worship on campus. And yeah. we were trying to find a person that would uh, take over the role of chapel music ministry. Uh, and there were all kinds of debates swirling at the time. Now, this was back in 1999. So you have to place yourself in the Lord, I lift your name on high kind of era um, if you're so musically inclined. And music is really just starting to make inroads into regular church worship services. And there was controversy about the kinds of music we should sing in chapel. Should we find somebody that was trained to conduct a choir and a full orchestra and a new four-part harmony well? Did we want somebody that um, knew the guitar really well and, and knew the new music coming out? And all of that to say that um, those debates got me thinking seriously for the first time about what is it that is at stake for us theologically in music? Um, I couldn't have articulated it this way then, but looking back on it, um, I would say that I sensed that there was something more to the debate than I like the way that this song sounds and I like the way that that song sounds. Somehow our understanding of who God was, was at stake in the ways that we were worshiping. And so the rest of my life I've uh, put into higher ed to try to get some language around those questions. Wow. That is quite, quite a path, quite a story. Um, I have to ask you, um, I was going to ask you this later, but do you, do you have any explanation for why so many modern or contemporary Christian music songs are high? Because you and I are altos. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you're my song. <laughs> um, I have to sing the tenor part half the time. <laughs> if you can sing a part at all. I mean, yeah. I, I think... Part of it is so many of the songs that we sing now were designed for a solo voice. And that solo voice doesn't always fall in the register that I am comfortable singing in. Actually, it often doesn't. Um, and I think this, this has just been a sadness of mine. You mentioned alto and four-part harmony. I've, I've watched as the music that we sing in church moves away from that kind of vocal harmonic structure. I, I think honestly right now, the most interesting harmonies are in the band 
which mm. forces the congregation to sing a single melodic line while the band um, does the interesting harmonics underneath. And it's really hard as a vocalist to uh, to figure out where your part should be. Yeah. Um, so you and I are pretty close in age, but I did not know that we were we are both, I think, part of the Oregon Trail generation. Yes. Can you talk about what that is and how it shapes your understanding of music and liturgy and sort of how that gives you this perspective of kind of having a foot in both generations? My friend Kelly and I spent hours playing the organ trail on an old PC and it was, I mean, before the age of graphics and um, oh it was a really popular computer game and it was like make choice A or choice B. And once you do that, then you, you find out that you've run out of supplies or someone in your camp has died of dysentery. And the idea is to make it all the way to the West. <laughs> okay. Did you ever make it to but the I, West? Um, you know, I don't, I don't have memories of that. I, too many of our group were just <laughs> killed off in the process. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> I'm pretty sure there's a new version of it now I read somewhere, but, um, but I digress. Um, <laughs> so I, I came up with, well, I borrowed the moniker, the Oregon Trail Generation from another author whose name I'm not remembering right now. Um, but because that game was emblematic of my childhood in the late 80s and early 1990s. Um, and, and the thought is that those of us that grew up in Gen X or in, in those years between old school and digital natives really had our feet in both worlds. I remember I didn't get my first email address until I was in college. So I grew up doing research in hardbound encyclopedias in the library. Um, and by the time I was graduating college, I was searching for things on the web. I was still of the generation that was trained to write thank you notes, um, but I also don't feel curmudgeonly when a student shoots me a text to say thank you. Um, it's, it's kind of an appreciation for two styles, um, both the old and the new, because you were right there in the middle as those changes were happening. So you're, you're not entirely one or the other, and you're a little bit of both. Yeah, And I feel that way about my own self in when it comes to worship music. I grew up in an age when um, prior to high school, we sang out of the hymnal four parts every Sunday. There was just a canon of hymns that I, I knew, my parents knew, my grandparents knew. But during my high school and college years, as, as we were learning praise and worship choruses, and I was playing them on the guitar and really found a particular kind of heart music in that, um, that was different from, from the spiritual experience I had singing hymns, I also came to appreciate that. So, so I think when I'm writing, I, I don't want to be the one saying, oh, those young whippersnappers that are <laughs> trying to get rid of hymnody, that's terrible. Um, <laughs> and I'm, I'm also not saying, oh, those new songs, they're entirely worthless. Um, I, I can see both sides. <laughs> that's an oversimplification, but yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting because I don't know, and Corey, I'd be interested in your thoughts too. In my own upbringing, I had no hymns and didn't even become familiar with hymns until learning sacred music at high school, at a public high school, no less. Um, wow. I grew up in the church in Alabama that started Hosanna Integrity Music. So we were on those albums like when we were kids. Um, okay. And so my, I, I never 
really appreciated hymns um, for for in the spiritual worshipful sense. I, I liked them musically, and but it took me a long time to understand that they could be worshipful because to me, worship and music had a certain sound, and it wasn't that. Yeah, yeah. How about for you? Yeah, no, I have different experiences because I obviously didn't grow up in the church. I grew up going to shul. I, right. So I didn't start going to church until I was 29, almost 30 years old. So, <laughs> and we we checked out a few different churches before we settled on the one that we um, stayed and, and raised our kids in for, you know, 10, 15 years. And honestly, I was, I was ambivalent. I was torn because there were, there were times when selfishly, I, I just thought, man, this is like a bad knockoff of the carpenters and it just doesn't move me whatsoever, <laughs> you know, but I was getting worship music. I was getting gospel music. I was getting sort of neo folk sounding music that more resonated with me. But then later on, when we started going to a church that did use the hymnal, I, it really resonated with me. It, it wasn't, I don't know if you could say it wasn't cool or contemporary, but for me, it, it had, it was really well done. First of all, just from a virtuous, like a virtuous standpoint, uh, it was also, it had enough resonance with my upbringing because so much was, uh, we went to an Orthodox synagogue and I did find sanctity in the more ritualistic approach, whether it was uh, the songs or the prayers or the what have you. Um, so it, it resonated with me on a deeper level once we went to, uh, when we were uh, at a church that was using the hymnal. But I, I, I came to appreciate a lot of it, even, even the music that was just like, man, there was some music that was just so, I don't know what word to use without being really offensive, but it was just like <laughs> music done by people who didn't understand what music could do. Um, but it was almost like they were doing it from like a... Um, this is really the way music is supposed to be done. And like everybody who understands music is like, no, man, you, you're like, you just don't like, okay, good for you. Do that. But like, not here, <laughs> you know, um, but it's all, it's all sort of practice in a way it, it like practice to whether you're connecting with the words themselves through the bad music and, and practicing the character of God, like going through the motions in a way it's good. It's drills, you know, at the, at the very least. And then other times it really does prepare one's heart uh, to be among the brothers and sisters of Christ uh, and prepares you, your, your mind, heart, soul, and, and body to hear the word uh, from, from the teacher. Um, so I don't know. There, there were times when I was just really cynical, like, man, if I had heard this stuff before I became a Christian, I probably wouldn't become a Christian. So, <laughs> so yeah, I've, I had different experiences, but it was different because I, I didn't become a Christian until I was 29. So I, I was coming for, with a whole set of life experiences that a lot of folks yeah. didn't necessarily yeah. have. But I do think that when you're a musician, it's hard to be, to get into a worship mindset when people are singing off key or the music is off key. Mm -hmm. It wasn't even that it was like they, they were on key and they were keeping time, but that's, that's not music. There's something transcendent about music, yeah. which, you know, I, I think is God given actually that um, in the rigid nature of what, what was being presented, the worst versions of it. I just thought, man, what a missed opportunity. 
You know, yeah. you're sort of imposing yourself on an art form and you've, you've never understood the art form, what it actually is and how it can communicate to soul to soul, you know? Yeah. So does that make sense? What I'm saying? Yeah, no, I was actually going to say, I think that's actually, there's a segue in there to back to the book, which is, you know, that's sort of the tension that Melanie's book explores yeah. is the transition from liturgical, which I think we had to, I had to look up. <laughs> <laughs> much more structured uh, and scripturally based to, to a, a music that's more uh, contemporary and maybe there's more rock and pop influences. I, I thought it was interesting. You interviewed this worship minister in a traditional liturgical church. You don't name him, which kind of allows him to be even more transparent. And he says, quote, it seems like it's more about video and lighting and projection and transitions. It's so much more about getting a polished end product and about the experience while you're doing it or then about the experience while you're doing it. Um, as, I, as I said, I, I think I've, I've also been through that tension and that transition myself. I'm wondering if you think that the American evangelical church has lost the true definition of worship, um, which is really technically sort of being able to enter into the presence of God, uh, the mode by which you do so. Yeah, that, that's a big question. I think there are, authors, particularly from um, Roman Catholic and mainline denominations that would say that worship is the missing jewel of the evangelical church. That, that phrase has been around for a little while. Um, that evangelicals, unlike their counterparts in other traditions, don't have this set order of worship that makes sure to balance different parts of scripture from Old and New Testaments that has specific times of confession and forgiveness and a weekly celebration of the Lord's Supper. Um, a lot of evangelical churches are not patterned that way. And so when you're looking at it from a traditional liturgical perspective, all that in air quotes, it seems like where is worship? It's been lost. I don't think that's true. I think evangelicals care deeply about worship. But we've almost gone the other extreme. In, in some ways, I often hear the phrase, well, all of life is worship. That's, that's become a mantra in evangelicalism. Um, and it's, it's so broad that we don't think intentionally about, well, this specific thing that happens on Sunday morning is a different kind of worship than the way I am worshipfully living my life out in the world the rest of the week. So I, I think there's that kind of theological piece I also think that worship has become so much more commercialized than it was uh, when I was in high school and, and uh, the years since then. There's just so much new product, to use a crass term, that uh, leaders have to sort through on a weekly basis. And suddenly you're having to make decisions that aren't strictly theological. Um, they are things like Who's this song going to appeal to? And um, is this in, in keeping with what our congregation likes to sing? And do we have the right instrumentalist to be able to pull this off? And so I think there, there are pragmatic questions that sometimes, um, like, like that pastor said, end up trumping the deeper theological ones that we also should be asking. So I know that you're not vocationally a sociologist, but in your studies of, it was uh, seven churches, right? This last, the last book? Yeah. Yeah, very, very different across the country in very different areas of the country. I was wondering what 
if I may, sociological observations you made about the way these different churches observed, whether it was the worship or the sermon or anything else about about what you were what you were observing there. Yeah. Well, uh, Corey, you hit on one of my vulnerabilities, which is I will be the very first person to say I'm not a sociologist (laughs) and I use the term um, I'm an ethnographer lightly because there are those um, in the social sciences that really have a better handle on that discipline than I do. But you get to play a sociologist on uh, on pod, on TV now. So <laughs> Dude, yeah, I, <laughs> I get to dress up as one. Yeah, yeah. There you go. You did note how different groups of people in different parts of the country and different churches behaved, what their uh, sort of communal behavior was like. So I, I was hoping that you could describe some of those differences or some general observations that you made in in different places. I mean, I I took a couple cues from other better educated ethnographers than myself. So one of the things that I did was to stay in each site for two weeks. So in case something, and occasionally this did happen, something just went wrong in the worship service or it was not a typical Sunday and you don't want that to be the one and only representation of your congregation in the book. Uh, And the, the other thing that two weeks did for me was it opened up the relational space to have good conversations and it gave me enough time um, that the, some of the stories started to repeat themselves. So I would talk to somebody in the beginning of the week and later on in the week, okay, I've heard this same story about the congregation from three different people who are unconnected to each other. That gives me a good sense that this was something important in the church. I think one of the things that surprised me in a way that maybe it shouldn't have was the geographical differences between my churches. I teach in New England and I teach a class on understanding evangelical worship. And when I get students from the South, they're, they're in despair. Just, you don't understand. Evangelicalism is such a different thing in the South than it is in Connecticut. Um, Now that I've spent a little time, I understand what they mean. Same thing in the Pacific Northwest. They're just so contextual in really important ways that our conversations don't always account for. So Miss Lisa, my lovely bride, we're going to be married almost, it'll be 25 years this summer. Um, But she's from, she's from Alabama. And uh, when we went back to visit Granny Mac and went to her church, there were all of maybe 20 people in the church, uh, all of whom were over 90 years old. Uh, except for Pastor Stan. <laughs> and it was just such a different experience than going to church out here in Southern California. You know, Pastor Stan was all fire and fury and, you know, get on his toes within about two minutes of starting the sermon. And the uh, the choir, to your point about when stuff messes up, man, there was not a time that we went to church with Granny Mac that the choir director just went way off key or just forgot the words, <laughs> messed up on the piano. <laughs> But everybody's like, that's okay, Paul. You, you just good. give it a, give it another go. <laughs> so, and I just, there was something about that that was so heartwarming. I really enjoyed those services in a, in a whole different way. So, <laughs> yeah, same here. That, that was my favorite kinds of moments when I hit the sweet spot where I felt more like, oh, I'm a friend of this congregation more than I am an outsider taking clinical notes. Um, yeah. That, yeah. that happened in, in each of the congregations. That's cool. So I, I didn't tell you this, Jess. Sorry, I, I'm kind of derailing the conversation just a stretch. But since I brought up Granny Max Church, uh, Granny asked me, uh, she passed away. She was into her 90s. And she asked me to give her eulogy. And the first answer I had was, well, Granny, you ain't dead yet. So why are we talking about this? But I was so honored 
Pastor Stan was at the funeral. All of her um, friends from Aww. church were at the funeral. And here I was, the Jew from Jersey, giving the, the eulogy at Granny Mac's <laughs> funeral. So it was uh, it was pretty cool. She was a Proverbs 31 woman, if there ever was one. So that's cool. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. My husband got to do that for his grandma and she was the same. Um, it was that it was really cool to get to see him kind of weave the story together um, of her and her influence on his life. But I digress. Yeah. These, well, these are important memories in the church. And, um, you know, pulling back for just a minute, we, we often talk about politics on this uh, podcast. Um, we're mostly talking about faith and worship and religion, but you write in the introduction to the book, Melanie, that you didn't really foresee or, or weren't aware until you got into your research that there was this moment happening in the evangelical church, these, this, a lot of questions around the support politically for Donald Trump. And I'm wondering if you found any explanations for that or, or any interesting observations for that in the context of worship and the questions that you were asking as you traveled the country. Yeah, um, no, that's a great question. My research started in 2014 before politics was um, kind of the major issue that it became. And I ended in 2018 and, and so much changed so quickly. Um, I think we've heard a lot recently about 60 some percent of evangelicals voted for Trump and, and evangelicalism and politics have become so entwined in the news that I think somebody who was unfamiliar with the evangelical tradition and maybe stepping into a church for the first time would almost expect that, you know, there were red, white, and blue balloons on the platform and big signs saying, uh, make America great again, and a pastor saying, here's the candidate that you should vote for. And the thing was, as I traveled around, what might be surprising to some folks is how little these churches really wanted to talk about politics. They didn't want that to be their defining face in the book or um, or in the world in general. They would rather be known by the good work that they were doing in their communities and, and their outreach events. Um, but there was a strong desire to stay apolitical. And I think in most of the churches that I attended, I would have no idea whether the congregation voted red or blue. And um, I, I think they were mostly purple in their makeup. So it almost feels like you should be able to draw a straight line between here's what worship practice looks like. And it leads to the kind of person that votes in this specific way. And I, I just don't see that line. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. That's counterintuitive to much of what we've been reading. Uh, I wonder if there, so there's this expression, uh, Sunday morning church is, is one of the most segregated places in, in the country. I wonder if churches have further segregated themselves toward the end of the Trump administration and post January 6, 2021. But that, I, I don't think that's something that encompassed your study. I did want to point out a, um, I think this was also in your introduction. You summed it up really well. The reason pastors wielded little influence over the actions of their parishioners during the Trump campaign was because books, magazines, music, films, ministry conferences, blogs, t-shirts, and home decor yeah do more to shape the evangelical movement than any of its official theologies, uh, as you know, you that, quoted. That's, yeah. that's Christian Abdemez, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, speaking of 2014, I did want to ask you uh, a personal question. Halfway through the project, you were diagnosed with cancer. 
Yes. There was a quote that I was I loosely was referring to, and I didn't remember where I read it. Then I just reread some notes from from the book, uh, and someone encouraged you do today well. So I was wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about that experience and how you're doing. Yeah, thank you so much for asking. I am, uh, praise God, I am in full remission and have been for I think six years now. So um, I'm I give thanks for that every single day. I discovered my cancer um, while I was in the middle of researching. I was at uh, at a church that I did not end up writing about in the book because it, it was too traumatic a time in my life. But I discovered a lump and um, and thank God decided to come back to Connecticut to get it checked out instead of part of me thought maybe I should wait till I'm all done with the research in six months from now, maybe get it checked. But um, mm. I felt that little tug to come back and get it looked at right away. And um, within a week of the biopsy, I was in treatment. So I, I had chemo, I had reconstructive surgery, I had radiation. I put the project on pause during, during that about two years worth of treatment and then went back out and finished the other churches that I hadn't gotten to. So in many ways, so much of this book feels like a before and after to me, um, before I got sick and after um, hmm. after the cancer, before the presidential elections and the aftermath afterwards, it was a really interesting time to be writing it. But that uh, the idea of do today well, um, a blogger friend of mine was diagnosed with a more aggressive form of cancer than I had. And she just wrote regularly about focusing on what was in front of her that day and making good choices in the moment about the next right thing to do, not trying to look too far into the future. And that has helped me so much. It still does. And, and do today well, I've picked up that mantra from her and I have it hanging in a prominent place in my house now. I didn't realize that you had taken two years off for that, for the treatment and, and recovery. So it strikes me that your perspective must have been very, very different in the before and after, as you refer, refer to it. But also the world was in a very different place. The country was in a very different place. Did you notice that when you came back to pick the research back up? Yeah. Well, you guys are great at getting to the core questions. Thank you for asking. I did <laughs> notice that. Um, I noticed, so let me, let me answer both parts of that question. I noticed that I had changed personally in, in all kinds of ways that are impossible to describe. But one of them that I could pinpoint was that I really craved Christian worship music that took a longer perspective. So I wanted to sing um, songs about when I tread the, the banks of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. I wanted there's, I wanted songs that said there's an eternity and we need to prepare for it now and, and start thinking about it because those were so helpful to me um, when my life was so uncertain. And so it, it gave me a hunger for songs that could age with us um, and that, that talk about the, the really hard things that are coming. So I, I noticed that in myself and um, I, Politically, yes, congregations weren't talking about politics from the pulpit, but there was a lot of anxiety um, in the time that I was writing around, do I, 
do I call myself an evangelical or not? My sense of what this word means is in flux. I'm not sure if I'm going to be happy continuing to use it in the future. I, I think we still wrestle with that, some of us. Um, mm -hmm. But it's less acute now than it was in maybe 2018, 2019 when I was interviewing. What about at your at your school? It was there. I know it's a divinity school, of course, but I wonder if in academia there is a greater, more overt hostility towards uh, evangelicalism or someone who's uh, studying, you know, evangelicalism. Yeah, I would say no. And, and part of my reason for that, I'm, I'm thinking about, I teach a course on understanding evangelical worship, and I, I taught it last night, and we were talking about the multi-ethnic churches in, in the book. And so many of my students come from various parts of the world. So lots of them from South Korea. Um, I've got a student now who is from Finland. I've had students who are from various parts of Africa. The reality is that evangelicalism is such a global phenomenon that I think while we can get frustrated with its American political iterations, um, the presence of so many international students on our campus helped me at least remember that this is a much bigger conversation. Yeah, in fact, I, I don't know if this is where I read this, but I've heard that the, the people who define themselves as evangelical is much more global in scope than other parts of Christendom. It was Russell Moore, Jess. Yes, remember? that's right. He brought that up. That's yeah. right. Yeah. But he, and that's his touch point for what it, it can be and what it should be and how we define evangelicalism. That it's, and that helps too in the context of, of race and race relations, <clears throat> which you talk about a little bit towards the end of the book. Um, fast forwarding through lots of questions, but <laughs> I, you know, Obviously, that the conversations around all of the um, police shootings of unarmed black men or sometimes marginally armed black men or young black men has really changed the public conversation about race relations. But the one church that you went to, um, and I can't remember where it was, can you talk a little bit about, uh, you, you write that you did your research before the killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery. Have you checked back in? with the congregations that were largely African-American that you spoke to about how things have changed in their, in their worship. It's, it's interesting to me because when you went through your personal grief and personal challenges, you wanted a different kind of worship. Did you see that in them as well? Yeah, um, that's the beautiful question, but alas, I don't know the answer to it. Um, partly because when COVID hit us, so many of the churches that I had been at for research change structurally or had a leadership change or went online or or maybe don't exist in the same format that they did so i haven't been able to do that kind of follow-up work to know what has changed or what hasn't yeah maybe i can ask the question this way because you did talk about the concept of reconciliation and racial reconciliation and you compared two uh, church leaders, one from Moody and one from North Point in Atlanta, in terms of how how their orientation was on that issue. What 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 are what are some of your thoughts about how that has played out, or just observations that you've seen? Could you talk a little bit more, maybe, about that? The differences between those two uh, church leaders. Yeah. Um, so, I think the church where I. 
I'm going to go to a different congregation than the two that you mentioned. Um, there was a congregation that I called Koinonia Vineyard mm -hmm. in the book. And I met with, it was recently after one of those shootings. And I spoke with a, an African-American woman who was one of the very few African-Americans who attended that church. And she was married to a white, uh, to a white guy. And this was a great spiritual home for them, except things would, what she told me was, we just don't talk about race in this congregation. We'll talk about Brexit. We'll talk about, and, and she named off any Brexit. number of world events. <laughs> <laughs> of all the things to talk about at church. Okay. <laughs> um, not yeah. sure what Jesus's position is on Brexit, but. <laughs> no, I'm not sure either. <laughs> just various ways that the world was splintering and, yeah. and the leadership's willingness to name those from the pulpit, but not to get beyond, but would only use platitudes when it came to racial reconciliation kinds of issues. And that one of the things she said that really stuck with me was that this pastor was trying to model that apolitical stance that I had mentioned earlier. We don't want to be about politics. We want to be about faith. We need to stay open-hearted to those who might have different opinions than we do. Um, and, and this woman's point was, this pastor is my friend. Um, I consider him my brother. But if he's saying that from the pulpit, he hasn't really listened to me and my concerns. Because if you're an African-American and you're pulled over by the police, the advice that we give our kids is not you need to remain open hearted and assume the best of the person that you're you're dealing yeah. with. Uh, there are safety measures in here. There are historical reasons why that policy does not work for us. And if you can't see those, you're not really seeing me fully. And it was it was so poignant to me that I that's I think the only chapter that I centered one incident, um, one racial incident. Um, but as I said in the introduction to it, these questions about race popped up in different ways in almost all of the congregations that I visited. Some of them saying things like, well, we have we have a church full of people from all parts of the world. If we celebrated, you know, African-American heritage, well, what would that say to our Chinese population? Or so instead of singling one out, we need to uh, treat everybody equally and um, just different different ways that congregations were wrestling with that and and with the legacy that racism has left. One of the things I'm really struck by is how how worship is so much different in a largely African American church than it is in a largely white church. And I feel like my personal experience has been that it is longer, it is more spirit led, and it is more open ended in uh, the African-American churches where that I participated in worship, maybe less scheduled. And I just wonder if you, if you got to talk or, or investigate that a little bit, that where, where does that, where does that difference come from? And, and does that explain why some people are, are attracted to some models and, and not others? Yeah. Because there are differences in how we experience and do worship. Absolutely. And one of my one of my great regrets was uh, during the cancer years, I had wanted to go to an African-American evangelical church and include one in the study. And um, just the health and time demands meant that I didn't have the chance to do that as fully as I would have liked to. But I do think that 
there are really clear differences. I, I think back to um, at our school, we have a half hour worship service every day. And when the black seminarians try to fit in that half hour time slot, it always feels like we are especially doing injustice to their <laughs> tradition to say it needs to start at 11 and end at 1130. Well, that's just not the way spirit time works. <laughs> That's like telling the cantor on on uh, the eve of Yom Kippur to, uh, you know, could you limit the Kol Nidre to, you know, five minutes max? He's like, I, I can't do my work, you know. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, and something something else even at school that um, that I've had to get more used to is when I will preach in chapel, um, oftentimes the African-American students are snapping in approval or to underscore something that I've said. And there's there's so much more back and forth between preacher and congregation. Um, I see that in a little way in preaching in chapel. I see it so much more when I visit African-American churches. It's this dance and this um, kind of improvisation. The musicians are really attuned to when the pastor is going to crescendo and there's chemistry between them and the music swells and the preaching crescendos. And the congregation starts going back, amen. It just feels relational and, and, and there's a different sense of relationship with time. I go into an African-American church and we are on heavenly time and it's going to take as long as it takes um, for the spirit to move and, and for us to express to God what we need to express. And there's less worry about the brunch reservations afterwards and making it on time. So that was one thing I wanted to ask you about, because I briefly was a worship leader at a small church and, you know, it was the height of the seeker sensitive movement, which I think some of our guests have heard me talk about. We probably should explain again what that that movement is. It's really kind of making church more accessible to people who are unchurched was the design of it. But I, there, what, there is this tension between performance and allowing the Holy Spirit to move in that context. Because again, that's the focus of why you're there is to sort of meet with God. What did you learn about how, how music plays with that tension? Um, what music maybe makes it easier to let the Holy Spirit in, how, how musicians handle that? Because I remember, I remember a conversation where they, they said, you know, this is not about singing the right notes only. It's not about just being good and excellent at music. music. It's about listening to the Lord and, and feeling what the congregation kind of is feeling and sort of being in tune. So there's, there's additional skills in that context that you might not have if you're a choir director. Yes. Boy, that's a really interesting question that does not have a one size all fits answer. <laughs> I'm sure it doesn't. I'm, because it, yeah, and I, I'm thinking partially just I went to churches of many different sizes. And when I think about the mega churches that I attended, they are on a really strict schedule with their music, particularly the ones that have satellite campuses. And so your your local worship team on site has to start and end by a particular point or else you can't simultask or simulcast the sermon that's being broadcast to seven campuses. Mm. Um, and when you're on that kind of a strict logistical time schedule, everybody has a click track in their ear. The metronome is the same. The beat is the same. You can, you can time down to the minute. This is how long worship is going to take. 
which is really? not to say that it's not. Yeah. They, they literally are t- like, they, they don't, they don't, they don't have a countdown in their ears. Do they? Yeah, they do. They do. Wow. Yeah. I've, I've been in churches where there's a clock or a, you know, a ticker thing. Um, what, what is it called? A timer thing. Yeah, and the pastor's the pastor looking too. at the big red thing or the worship leader's looking at the big red thing. And he knows that at whatever it might be, 14 minutes and 30 seconds, he's got to wrap up his last song or whatever time it is. Yeah. But it's very, very structured, certain churches I've been to. Yeah. One of my most amazing moments um, was at a mega church where the sound crew said, hey, do you want to put the headset on for one of the one of the hours just to hear what we're hearing? And it was amazing the amount of click track and okay, podium to the left and time to remove this. And wow, it, it, it's, it looks so seamless when you're just sitting in the congregation and there's so much happening behind the scenes to make it work. <laughs> so, so being a New York theater rat, I, I produced some, uh, you know, some theater in New York, mostly 99 seat equity waiver type stuff. And when I, the first time I went into one of those churches, my, one of my first thoughts is, man, what I could do in a theater like this, <laughs> you know, like, like we never had a production manager. It was like, you know, the guy who was playing, uh, you know, the guy who was playing Hamlet in between scenes was going back and, you know, flicking on the lights for uh, <laughs> just whatever it might've been. So man, the production yeah. value of some of those spaces, I was just absolutely envious of. <laughs> absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. And, and just to get back to your question, I think, in a, in a setup like that, when you talk about spirit-led worship, I think the spirit leading comes prior to that Sunday morning. Um, we're going to trust that we're prayerfully considering the songs that need to be sung and, and the way that the whole service gets put together so that the audience sees it as seamless and there are absolutely no distractions to their worship. Um, but we'll, mm-hmm. we'll put the spiritual prayer time in before that so that in the moment, we can be focused on on the details. Contrast that with the more charismatic church that I went to that um, that had that model of we're going to stay here for as long as it takes. And the worship leader has that channel to God and is sensitive in the moment to how God might be directing the song choice or how long we want to linger on a refrain or or repeat a verse, or maybe even sing a song spontaneously in the middle of the sermon. Um, there, there's so many models for how that how that works. Somebody told me in in a congregation that it, I was visiting it during the summer. It was primarily lay led. They took turns preaching, so not necessarily folks with theological training. And how good the sermon was was really hit or miss. Um, and I tried gingerly to ask one of the church members about it and whether, whether it bothered them that there wasn't kind of this polished product every week. And they, what they said really surprised me and, and kind of delighted me. And they said, you know, we live in a part of the country where there are lots of great sermons available on podcasts um, or on the radio. And if I want that kind of high level preaching, I know where to find it. Same thing with music. I don't come because of that. I come because of the physical bodies and the community that is gathered and the way that I can sense the spirit moving when there are a group of us in the room. It's less about the content for me, even though that's important. And it's more about the experience of gathering together with other believers. And I thought, you know, that's, that's really beautiful and a corrective to some of the performance orientation that I think we have. 
Yeah. And it really got tested during the pandemic too, mm. where you, you know, you had the me- mental health implications of not actually being touched or being in the presence of other people for long yeah. periods of time. Um, yeah. Yeah. Do not forsake yeah. the gathering together of the brethren and the sisterin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Jess, I know we're, we're coming up on almost an hour here. So I want to, I want to make sure that, uh, Number one, I don't want to cut you off if you have more questions. I know I have lots more, but I also want to give Melanie an opportunity to add, to see if you have any questions for us. I do. Okay. Well, I mean, I love the title of your show, Talking Religion and Politics Without Killing Each Other. Yeah. And part of the reason I love it is because that's what I'm trying to facilitate in my classes uh, here at a Divinity School. And it's hard right now. Um, no surprise to anybody that's listening, but I feel like students are really afraid to say what they really think for fear of accidentally offending someone or, or being canceled or uh, part of what I hope to do in my classes is to help us listen to each other really well. What kind of tips do you have for me when I meet with students for an hour a week I want them to be able to speak freely, but also to take care of each other in that moment. Have you learned anything from previous guests that could help me as a professor? I, I don't know about your specific situation, uh, but we, we do have a rule on all of our platforms. So nonsense will be muted, incivility will be blocked, and the spreading of proven falsehoods and threats will be reported. So you know, it's not something that you can necessarily do live, but I find that we're in, when we're in front of each other, there are actual consequences to that which we say. You know, a lot of times it gets really, really heated when we don't have our real name uh, as, a, as a profile. And, and there, are, there, there isn't the possibility of somebody punching you in the nose for saying something really, really off. So yeah. th- that, that's number one. But we can, we can, we have that general ethos when we are with each other, partly because oftentimes it's it's the loudest, most extreme voices who dominate that conversation. So yeah. it's up to whether it's a professor or a moderator or you know other leaders to make sure that we make space and and we encourage, we draw people out who are the the majority, the those who have more nuanced opinions have space to participate in a conversation. Oftentimes that's not gonna happen when there are more than three people involved in the conversation. When it gets to four, five, six, 20 people, then it just becomes people, a lot of folks waiting to say what they wanna say without really engaging. Mm-hmm. But the mm-hmm. biggest the biggest thing that I would say is if, if the moderator or the teacher or the leader can set the tone with those kind of loose rules, but also, the the virtue of grace it's something that in in so many of our conversations in so many ways that that we've encountered each other we've forgotten about grace you know so there's there are these rules that are propping up on social media every day that i didn't know you know like uh, listen my family is from ukraine we 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 landed on ellis island almost exactly 101 years ago it was march 3rd and they came from Chernyovstrov. but I, like the fact that I didn't have the blue and the yellow, I somebody, I guess, woke up and sent out a memo that we were all supposed to have the blue and the yellow and that offended Pete. And I'm like, ah, ah, sorry, didn't get the memo. But you know what? I'm not going to let that um, 
I guess, uh, unwritten rule or what have you, uh, dictate well, it's virtue signaling, right? I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's, an, yeah. it's, you don't have to actually do anything, but put it on your social. Right. Media. Right. So giving, giving each other some grace, if we didn't get that memo, the other thing too, and I think this is the most important thing is to allow for each other's humanity and dignity and individuality. So whether it's me not putting the blue and the yellow, or maybe, um, you know, expressing a, a political opinion or a theological point of view that doesn't agree, whether it's something even really rife with passion, a, a pro-life issue, for example, a piece of legislation that maybe on the on, I, I am viewed as being on the wrong side of that line. Well, if that's the only bit of information that you know about me or the person that you're talking to, and you see that. It's not, it's not healthy to make all kinds of other assumptions. It's not, it's not accurate. It's not truthful to, to let a whole bunch of other dominoes fall and then assume that, oh, well, he's one of them, you know, that these are the same people who, and fill in the blank of who your favorite pretend villain is, pretend straw man is. So to allow, to give each other grace and to allow for each other's um, humanity and individuality. I think those are the most important things that we can do as, as moderators of these conversations. Yeah, and I would just add, um, I think grace is, um, I, I've, I know people who are writing about grace who are not professing, um, professing Christians or professing Jews or professing Muslims, but there's a real need for us to start and set the tone, I think, whenever we um, start anything potentially contentious is just that you know? Hey, look, we're, we're we, we. I just want to talk about it. I want you to feel safe to talk about it. I, I want us to say to each other, we are not going to hold anything against each other that happens in this space. We are genuinely going to be curious and fact finding about why these things happen, how we experience them, and we experience them differently. Um, my admonition to students when I talk to them is that we don't need a bunch of you to be the same. We don't. We don't. Nobody benefits from having a bunch of you know, identical people, we all have differences and the diversity is beautiful, but we can't just make the diversity the ideal because diversity without the equipment to handle it is how we get to where we are now. We, we, we have diversity and we don't have the equi equipment to talk to each other through that diversity and look at the beauty of that diversity and really experience it. It should be safe for me to ask someone who looks and sounds different than I do more about themselves and, and not be, be judged for not knowing, you know, I'm gen, if I'm genuinely curious, then the same for them to me, like, you know, what's your experience? Like, how do you see this situation? Th these are conversations that we, if we can't ask those things and we can't have those conversations, if we're canceled before we start, we're never going to be able to understand each other's point of view. Yeah. yeah. One of my favorite moments, I was in a room uh, with a few folks who all had very strong opinions and uh, the, the, he wasn't the assigned leader. It was just a bunch of folks getting together, but he, he was looked upon as uh, a mentor for many of us that were there and things just took on a life of its own. A lot of, you know, just heated back and forth. And uh, as, as wise people often do, he stayed mostly quiet until he just felt it got to, it went too far. And then he just disrupted everything. His, his quiet calm. He said, uh, we, we were all kind of getting to a point where we were yelling at each other. And then he started speaking softly and he said, I was once in a room and then everybody quieted down and these inanimate objects seemed to 
come alive and I could hear their voice. And in fact, one curtain said to the other curtain, they were talking to each other. And do you know what he said? Pull yourself together, man. <laughs> Sorry, that's, that was my sneaky way of getting into Glego joke. <laughs> no, no, no. It, but it actually happened that way. And, and it was just had nothing to do with anything. But what it did was it disrupted that argument. It just and it, and it, you know, we all had a laugh about it and it reset. And it listen, Glego jokes are funny. Jessica. Je, so if Jessica doesn't agree with I that. told you about Glego jokes. No, I no, I tell Glego jokes. Yeah, I'm the I'm the Glego after the Glego. I'm the Glego era parent. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, my, one of my best friends, a guy named Mark Glego, and he's you know he's the ultimate dad joke teller. But that was my friend's way of disrupting the momentum of something that was purely contentious, not productive at all. You know, yeah. and he he reset the tone. It allowed us all to kind of check ourselves. You know. Yeah. Um, so, and it was, it's, it's always worth telling a Glego joke. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll add that together. one to my repertoire. <laughs> Corey, that's your book, is you have to collect the jokes for such a time as this, okay? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, Jess, did you have any more questions or is, uh, Good. should I land this plane? Let's land it. All right. Coming in for a landing. All right. Melanie, this is such a treat. I loved reading the book. Uh, so before we take, uh, we take off or land, uh, tell us how we can find more information about you, your writing and all the great work that you're doing. Yeah, thanks. Well, the book is called um, Evangelical Worship and American Mosaic, and it's published through Oxford University Press. So you can check it out on their website or on any of your um, yeah, Amazon, etc. And you can find more out about me by coming to the Yale Divinity School website page. And there's a bio and a picture and all that interesting stuff. So it's good stuff. And the book is a great read. If you're a history buff or interested in, in church practices, it's there's so much good stuff in there. So I, I couldn't recommend it highly enough. And uh, thank you again for, for joining us, Melanie. It was great getting to know you a little bit better. And I hope we do it again. Me too. This has been sheer joy. Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. And great to see you, Jess. Let's not wait so long before we see each other again. Drum roll. I don't know why I always go to the drum roll, but I feel like I need one. So jazz hands. That'll be my new drum roll. Awesome. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, please hit that subscribe button, leave a review and comments wherever you get your podcast and tell a friend about TPNR. We're easier to recommend than ever. It's politicsandreligion.us. That's politicsandreligion.us. And you can even support our program through a patron app on our site. Please do that. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. If you dig what we're doing here, it is super easy to follow us. You can go to our site, politicsandreligion.us. That's with the and spelled out, A-N-D. Politicsandreligion.us. And we're on all the socials, at TP and R pod. You know, TP and R pod for talking politics and religion pod. And here's a big way you can support us, by becoming one of our patrons. You can even become a producer or executive producer of our program and have a lot more say in who we bring on, the kinds of questions we explore, or just help us keep the lights on. But mostly, we really appreciate you giving us a listen. So for the whole team here at Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, thanks for hanging out with us. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam. <laughs>